0: page Ecclesiastes uh, we'll be in chapter 2 and while you're finding that it's okay we'll have the scriptures that we're studying up on the screen today um, let's go back to our memory verse our theme verse remember we found it and some of you to your objection we found it in the last chapter of Ecclesiastes the conclusion of the matter in Acts 12, uh, Ecclesiastes 12 um, let's Can you guys say this with me together? Let's just kind of speak this out as we are hiding this in our own hearts and our memory. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Say it with me. The end of the matter, you say it out loud. The end of the matter, say with me, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments is the whole duty of man. The core passage, I think whenever I learn like a, a verse like this, I look at the imperative or the command. What is this verse commanding? And it's right in the center. So if you even start from there, the big idea, the big picture of even the book of Ecclesiastes, the theme of this winter camp, and even the, the purpose of our life is to fear God and to keep his commandments or obey his commandments. The truth of the matter is none of us have fully obeyed God's commandments. All of us have sinned in here. Every single one of us, including me, over and over. The Bible tells the very, very bad news, but the true news that everyone, each one of us, has sinned and fallen short of God's glory, meaning that we have fallen short of God's righteous standard. Not one of us is good enough For God, according to his standard. No one in here can say, I've never sinned, I've never disobeyed God. If you say that, then you are a liar and lying is sin. And that's a disobedience right there. In the middle of Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 7, verse 20, Solomon says this Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. He knows that. No one is there. Can I ask you this? First of all, if you're willing to admit that there is sin or disobedience in your life where you have gone your own way uh, according to what is right in your eyes, not God's, can you think of the earliest moment in your life where you were aware that you were doing something out of bounds? My earliest recognition, some of my earliest recognition, I was about six years old um, when when I realized, even at that young age, that my heart was bent towards sin, it was it was crooked, even in its its nature. So uh, I had a neighbor named Jimmy who lived next door to me, and uh, and Jimmy in his backyard had this chicken coop. It was a chicken coop that was long. It looked like a coffin, really. And I remember thinking, wow, like, I could probably fit in there. And, and I remember thinking, like, and getting this terrified, you know, thought that what if someone trapped me in that chicken coop? And how horrible that would be and tormenting. And I remember thinking, oh, Lord, don't let that ever happen. Uh, I'd be claustrophobic and I couldn't get out. I'd be at the mercy of someone else. And I remember having that thought. And so do you know what I did with that thought? I decided that this other kid, Brandon, who lived a couple doors down, that what if we trapped him in there? Isn't that the worst thing ever? That I, it, it would have been the, my worst nightmare, and yet as a six-year-old, I thought, I'm going to do that to someone else. And so we invited Brandon over. Brandon was a bit more of a shy kid, had a harder time making friends. And so Jimmy and I got him in his backyard and said, Hey, Brandon, you, you can probably fit in there. You should get in that chicken coop. And he's like, No, I don't want to. I don't want to. Like, Come on, Brandon. And I remember it took a lot of coaxing and, and, and for him to get in there. And when he got in there, we slammed the door shut and we sat on top of that door. And Brandon, I know, and Brandon is screaming. In fact, his, his, I remember his hand had gotten caught. And so we were sitting on top of his hand. And he's just screaming. And yet, for some reason, I thought that having power over him would bring some sort of satisfaction or enjoyment that that this is the way of life. We, We eventually, of course, let him out. But that stuck with me, and I was not okay with my decision to do that. Because even as a six-year-old, you know, we we think about our own lives and we want to be like the hero in life. Like when we watch movies and we admire those who do good and help others, and I'm like, I want to be a hero. And yet in that backyard, in Brandon's life, I was playing the role of the villain at six years old. No one taught me that. My mom and dad did not teach me that. There was something crooked within me, even as a little boy that I would torment Brandon like that. You know my mom and dad live in that same house still uh, in Southern California. So when I came here to speak at camp, I spent an extra day with my mom and dad, and I drove by Brandon's house. He doesn't live there anymore. I'm 50 years old. Brandon must be 50. I remember thinking I'm like, "God, I hope that Brandon recovered from that. I hope that that he found better friends than me." And God, what is it? Even from the earliest I can remember, why would I ever do something like that? I chased something that I thought would be uh, enjoyable, that would, would be meaning and significant by having power over someone else, and it did not deliver. And I bring this up. To to just highlight our own natural tendency and your tendency as well to chase things of this world to bring you meaning and satisfaction. And sometimes it's at the expense of another kid, another person. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we continue on Solomon, the man who had everything, the man who tried everything, He continues to chase meaning and satisfaction and purpose and fulfillment. And he's going to give a list of all the things that he pursued, pleasures and possessions and accomplishments and even power over other human beings. So we're going to just look at Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. But as we do, God's word is open before us and it's going to be displayed. Would you join me in a prayer of humility? That basically says, God, would you teach me from your word today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is open before us. Our ears are open. May you bend our ears toward your truth. And I pray that you would teach each one of us something true in your word today, or you would remind us of something true that we have forgotten. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So here, here just let's read it. I'll read it for you, 11 verses. Uh, Solomon says so I said in my heart get it you know he's making that inner core decision I said in my heart verse 1 come now I will test you with pleasure enjoy yourself but behold this also was vanity he gives us a conclusion remember that word vanity means meaningless uh, emptiness it's like smoke or mist when when you when he says that that my efforts in trying to find enjoyment in pleasure um, he says it's vanity, it's worthless and useless. Um, all that work for nothing. When I was a teenager, I decided I would build myself a a batting backstop, you know, so I could practice hitting off a baseball tee. Remember, I thought I'd go to the majors. And I I needed a backstop big enough to hit that baseball into. And so I found some wood. My dad used to install carpet. And so we always had rolls of old carpet laying around, you know, the backyard. So I attached this roll of carpet to this huge metal, uh, wood structure I built. And it took me almost all day to build it. Hours and hours of, of thinking and planning. I put the carpet was rolled down. I put my batting tee in front of that carpet, kind of like cage or wall. And the first ball I hit punctured right through the carpet. And not because I was a powerful player, but because it was old carpet. And that means that that effort was vanity. All of my efforts, thinking that this is going to work, came up useless. It worked. It didn't even work one time. That's what vanity means. And he says, it's like he tried this in his life and it was like that batting cage stop. It was worthless, useless, vanity. Uh, verse two, Solomon says, I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? So he's kind of coming to his conclusion a bit. But he goes back, verse three, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body. Hold on, wait a minute, we just sang a song. And we said, God, I I searched for you, and you answered me. Solomon isn't searching for God. He he says, I searched, verse 3, I searched with my heart how I might cheer my body with wine, with alcohol. He said, my heart's still guiding me with wisdom. So he says, deep down, I knew this truth, but I thought, what if I just drink tons of wine? That's going to bring great pleasure and satisfaction he says, and how I, I search how to lay hold of folly. Uh, that is a lighthearted approach to life that takes nothing serious. He decided, what if I just live life with this attitude uh, of, of being silly and taking nothing really seriously? Maybe that will bring fulfillment. He said, uh, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So we see that he, he he's searched after wine, he searched after folly. Verse 4, then I made great works. I I built things. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens. Verse 5, I made gardens and parks and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees verse six i made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees these are not bad things or evil things but he thought maybe if i build stuff houses and vineyards and pools but do you notice i i find this is interesting the word myself see it's not wrong to build houses But he's not building them for other people in need. I think he might find some of God's fulfillment when he considers others, but he's only considering himself. So I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I do this for myself. And I think right there, he's trying to find enjoyment and fulfillment, but it's not coming. Look at verse 7. He continues in his life. This is his, his recap. I bought male and female slaves. I thought if I owned people and they worked for me, that that would bring this satisfaction, this meaning. He says, I had slaves who were born in my house, meaning he had them for a long time. And his slaves had kids who had kids who were slaves. He continues on. I also, in verse 7, I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had ever been before me in Jerusalem. This guy was rich. Verse eight, I also gather for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Thinking silver and gold, money is going to make me uh, happy and, and bring me enjoyment and meaning and significance, and it doesn't. He even goes on, he got more things. I got singers. Could you imagine that? You had enough money that you owned and had singers to sing to you. Both men and women. You know what else he accomplished and what else he accumulated? My, my Bible in Ecclesiastes 2.8 says, and he, and he got many concubines. Your Bible might say a harem. It's actually a hard word to interpret, but it was the delight of the sons of man. Basically this, it's, it, he acquired people, many people, for his own sexual pleasure. And he thought this. These sexual pursuits, this will bring meaning and fulfillment in my life. Verse 9, so I became great, and he did. I became great and surpassed all were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Do you know what he's kind of saying there? When he says my wisdom remained with me, he kind of like me as I was putting Brandon in that chicken coop, thinking that that was going to be great. God's truth remained in me and I knew that something was off all along. And I think Solomon knew that something was off because it wasn't bringing the satisfaction that he aimed for. Verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, in all my work. And this was my reward for all my toil. Last verse here, verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it and his conclusion and behold, all was vanity. All was meaningless, useless, worthless. It was a striving after the wind. It was like I was chasing after the wind. I could never attain it and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So Solomon has done it. He has tried everything, and it did not deliver. Here's maybe a modern example of it. There's an actor, uh, Jim Carrey. I don't know if your generation knows Jim Carrey, probably many of your leaders. I've grown up on many of his movies. The guy has had it all, and, and I'm really taken back by his quote. Jim Carrey said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. Man, that, that hits hard because don't we kind of think that if we hit fame, if we hit fortune, dude, we're set. And then guys like this come and say, nope, it's not the answer. Solomon told us this 3,000 years ago. Jim Carrey is saying this in the last decade. Sin promises satisfaction, and sin will never satisfy. It never delivers on what it promises. Now listen, here's what's interesting. Many of the things that Solomon pursued were not sinful or evil in themselves, right? Uh Building houses, that's not evil. Even wine, we read in the Bible that wine uh, brings uh, cheer to the heart, but yet the excess of wine, uh, drinking it to drunkenness, or looking to to wine or any substance in order to bring you satisfaction, that's where sin comes in. Pleasure itself is not evil. Do you know that God is the creator of pleasure? Pleasure and we would seek pleasure within his bounds within within what he says is right but seeking pleasure outside of God's commands that is sin it's our enemy always takes something good that God has given and then the enemy the devil he distorts it possessions are not evil in and of themselves vineyards are not evil money is not evil But the love of money, the greed for more and more, that is sin and evil. And we need to be aware of that. But when we fill our hearts with these things and we chase them, we're off course. And we are chasing after the wind and you're not going to find satisfaction. So if you could learn this lesson now, earlier in life, before you do damage to yourself, before you do damage to other people, if you could gain this this weekend... That you are going to be a young man, a young woman who fears the Lord and obeys his commands. You're going to take his commands into consideration. You will save yourself lots of harm. You will save others lots of harm as well. Fearing God and obeying his commands is what we are called to. And there is goodness and there is life in walking in God's ways. And like Solomon in Ecclesiastes, we often trade the true living God for a false imitation. We try to find enjoyment somewhere outside of God. And we turn our back on God and we begin to worship other things. We actually worship God's creations rather than the creator of those things. I remember in uh, a freshman in high school when I, I, I learned this verse in Romans that people worship the created things, not the creator. It was because me and my friend Ronnie were talking about this, this girl in our class and how beautiful she was. And we were talking all about her beauty and her body. And this other boy, Nathan, who was a freshman, uh, who is now actually an Episcopal priest back east, Nathan called us out. You know, because we were talking about her. And and he says, hey, guys, you know, you shouldn't really be talking like that. And I said, hey, God created her, and I'm just, you know, praising God for his creation. And that's where he said, no, 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 we are not to worship his creation. We are to worship the creator. I'm like, shut up, Nathan. Because that hurt. He hit me right there. I was exactly doing that. And I thought that was something. and, And so I ask you guys, do you ever worship God's creations more than worshiping the creator himself? For that's what we were doing sin is our decision to reject god's way and do our own thing and it's never going to work out for us the bible teaches us the bad news that we've all sinned right but yet god sent his son jesus christ as as light the light of the world but but john 3 says this that people love darkness instead of light Jesus came and they didn't want anything to do with him because their deeds were evil and they loved darkness. Can I ask you, do you love darkness more than light? Are you chasing and embracing things that are opposed to God? And now here's an honest question that I ask you. Is sin really that big of a deal? Because if the Bible says we've all sinned, everybody sins, right? Does God really even care about the the things of disobedience? Does God really care what I did to Brandon? I believe he does. I believe he cares deeply about it. You know what was sad? When I think back when I was six years old, when we forced Brandon into that chicken coop, you know what had happened a couple months before that event? My mom and dad, who were not Christians, At the time, they sent me to a Christian school. Um, And at that Christian school, a couple months before, I had learned about the good news of Jesus Christ. And I had made my own decision a few months prior to trust Jesus as my Savior and to begin following him. And two months later, I'm forcing Brandon into a chicken coop. Doesn't Doesn't that disturb you a bit? That disturbed me as well, that many of us as Christians... We still are inclined and bent toward evil, and yet God has a better way. Jesus, I asked the question, is sin that serious? Jesus had a few words about sin. I'm going to take us to Mark chapter 9. It's up here on the screen. Jesus had some things to say about sin. Mark 9, 43 through 47, uh, we read this. Jesus said, and if your hand causes you to sin... Cut it off. Did you hear me? If your hand, these are Jesus' words, not mine. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And many of the transcripts, uh, manuscripts would add, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's describing Hell. Jesus continues, verse 45, and if your foot causes you to sin, what should you do? Cut it off. Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell where worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. Verse 47, oh no. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. I I like your responses because I think those were the natural responses to Jesus' first audience. When they heard him say, did we hear what Jesus said? Did he really say that? If your eye causes you to sin, verse 47, tear it out or pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Can I ask you, do you think Jesus takes sin seriously? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very, very seriously. So, you guys, I've brought some knives and some saws and some scissors for us to to just take Jesus' words to obey. Are, Are you guys up for that? I knew it. I knew some of you are, but you're really not. Listen, service announcement. This is from theologian James Edwards, service announcement about Jesus' teaching. The instruction to hack off body parts that cause one to stumble is an example of metaphoric hyperbole, which is characteristic of Jesus and is not meant to be taken literally. Metaphoric hyperbole, that word hyperbole means an, uh, an extreme exaggeration in order to prove a point. So, that's why you don't see Christians walking with, with you know limbs and, and, and stubs because they've taken Jesus' words literally. But listen, don't minimize Jesus' teaching. He it meant to shock. There is truth in this. If there is anything in your life that is leading you, tempting you towards sin, remove it. Even if it's painful, cut it out. Because it is only leading to death and pain and leading you away from God. And a life of unrepentant sin is just taking you toward hell, a place of torment. A place that Jesus says is a real place. But he came to bring us life and to point us to the way to heaven. As important as your hands are, your feet and your eyes, they are not life. And God is life, and he's leading us. Fear God, keep his commandments. He is leading us towards life and fulfillment and joy and meaning and purpose in life. Now, you'll notice this in the scriptures, in the Bible. The Bible will tell you to be very patient towards other people who sin against you. They will teach you to be very merciful and gracious when someone else sins against you. But the Bible tells you to be extremely vigilant towards your own sin. Often we get it the other way around. We ignore our own sin, and we call people out for their sin, and we judge them. Jesus flips that around. Be merciful and gracious towards others when they sin against you, but be vigilant towards your own sin. Look first to your own life. And that's what I'm asking us to contemplate today. Are there any areas in your life where you are indulging in sin? You are walking down that path in the way that you treat other people. Maybe the other kids in your cabin. Maybe the way you treat your parents. Maybe how you're carrying yourself at school. And you're walking in ways opposed to God. You're not going to find success. You're not going to find meaning. In the end, you are just digging a pit that you are going to fall into. And so my commentary is this. Jesus takes sin seriously. In fact, it is the whole reason why Jesus came to earth was to take your sin, all of it, my sin, to take it upon himself and to pay the penalty for our sin, which is death. He paid the price in our place Jesus takes sin very seriously because sin kills. Sin kills. It leads, it separates us from fellowship and relationship with God. And sin will never satisfy. That's what we learned in Ecclesiastes 2. Solomon says, I tried it all and it didn't deliver. It didn't satisfy. God has a complete and utter hatred of sin. Because sin is stealing your life. Sin is separating you from him. Sin is everything that God is not. He is life. And God desires for you and me to live. He wants you to live. And that will be in walking in obedience to his ways. And fearing him. Respecting God as he ought to be respected. And that leads to meaning and fulfillment and purpose. As God leads you in in those good works that he's created in advance for you to do. Uh, One author I appreciate said this. God hates sin like a mother hates the cancer that takes the life of her child. Think about a mom and her her child. and, and, And we know that cancer has probably affected or touched many of our lives or people we love. And imagine being a parent and your child has a cancer that is stealing life away. Well, that parent hates that cancer. The parent doesn't say, it's okay to have a little cancer. It's okay to, you know, disobey here and there and do these kinds of things. No, 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 that cancer is stealing life away. My wife, uh, when I I met her when I was age 22, uh, and and part of marrying her is that I marry her whole family and her family history, and my wife, her name's Annette, her family has had a history of cancer. So genetically, she is more disposed um, towards skin cancer specifically. And I always thought it was weird that when we were dating, she was always very vigilant that I would wear sunscreen. I never used to wear sunscreen at all. Grew up in Southern California, just figured whatever. Uh, I'd buy the oil, the the 2-SPF oil, and just, you know, whatever. But she was very vigilant to buy better sunscreen. And I'm like, that's dumb. And she says, no, it's actually protecting our life. And now there's something that my wife has always had to do. She has, you know, uh, more freckles on her body, and she's always having to scan those freckles because some of those, one of those could be misshapen, miscolored, and and, and actually it's not just a freckle. It's actually the beginning stages of cancer. So she's always been very vigilant to watch for it. And when she sees something that doesn't belong and she goes to her doctor and they say, we've got to cut that off your body. Because it is killing you, and it will kill you. In fact, there's parts on her back she can't see very well. So imagine how weird it is for me to be scanning my wife's back, looking at every freckle and mole, and I'm looking for something that doesn't belong. And it's kind of scaring me because I don't want to find something there. But if I do, I don't ignore it. I don't just say, it'll probably be okay. In fact, a couple months ago, I saw something. And I'm no dermatologist. I don't study the skin. But I'm like, this one looks different than all the others. It's colored differently. It's shaped differently. And I told her it's something that she didn't realize. And she went to the doctor. And guess what the doctor said? That's the beginning of cancer. And so she cut it out. It's painful, but that cancer has no place on my wife's body. Because it has one purpose, and that is to steal and kill and take away her life. Could we treat sin the same way? That we constantly examine ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, is there anything, any behavior, thought pattern in my life that is actually leading me away from you? You know, in fact, that's actually what friends do. Why we have Christian community. Because sometimes your friends can see something in your life, a sin, that you don't see. And we are called as Christians to bring that to each other's attention. Not to judge them, but because we want them to live. That we would examine. And I I guess that's just how I I end as we, we wrap up. Is there any area in your life, any area in my life where I'm finding that I'm stepping out of bounds, I'm embracing sin? God, would you help us address that? Even my friends, would you just Bow with me in prayer. And this is a time, I'm going to invite our worship team to come. They're going to sing another song of praise for us in just a moment as we close. But this is part of the Christian walk, the part of life where we say, God, those behaviors, I know that they are sin. And I confess those to you. Confess means to say the same thing. Say the same thing as God about that, what you've been, how you've been speaking, how you've been acting at school, things you've said. Father, would we be people who repent day after day, Lord, that you would help root out behaviors in our life that are stealing, that are taking us away from your good plans. I pray, God, that we would always be sensitive to that. And I pray that we, Lord, as a Christian community, would also be bold enough when we see a friend, a Christian friend that we care deeply about And there's something they're involved in or a way that they're living that does not belong. Lord, it is opposed to your good truth. God, that we would be loving enough and gentle enough to confront them and share with them. Lord, that they too might see it. That they might, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, root that sin out, confess it, and get back on paths that follow you. Father, would you help us to grow in the fear of the Lord that we might keep all your commandments. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen. Would you guys keep in that moment, we're going to sing another praise song as you continue to ask God to examine your hearts.